You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on September 17th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. So uh, please do ask questions about things that you've heard about, wonder what they are. I'll see if I know uh, anything about science, different areas of science, technology, mathematics, things like that. I'm happy to address a whole variety of different kinds of questions, assuming that I think I know the answers to them. Um, I notice we have quite a few left over from previous times. Let me try and um, uh, take a look at a few of these. Um, oh, here's an interesting one. Okay, from Karup. They say, since photons do not experience the passing of time, does that mean that all their physical properties, such as wavelength, are fixed through their lifespan? Okay, that's kind of an interesting question. So the passage of time is something that is, in a sense, dependent on the, well, in relativity theory, dependent on reference frame, or effectively dependent on things like how fast you're moving through space. So the main result is that if you have two clocks, for example, one of them you think of as being at rest, you're sitting there with it, so to speak, Another clock is in a spacecraft that's zooming past at a large fraction of the speed of light, then the clock that's zooming past will be running less quickly than the clock that's sitting at rest relative to you. And there's a way to understand this in our models of physics. Finally, there's actually a way to sort of, I think, intuitively understand what's happening. In a sense, what, what happens, okay, so the universe in, in our theories of physics is made of this whole sort of giant network of points of space. And the details of how that network is connected are what determine what give you things like particles, like electrons and things like that. Those are all just features of the details of the structure of space. So if you want to move through space, what that means is the thing that represents you has to essentially recreate itself in a different place in this giant network. So it's like something like a, a vortex in, in a fluid like water, you know, that's it's spinning around a little vortex and that vortex can move around in the water, but the actual molecules that are involved in the vortex will be changing as the vortex moves from one place to another, but the structure of the vortex will stay the same. And so we think it is in the way that things like us might move through space or like the clock that we're looking at might move through space. So in effect, Moving through space, motion takes essentially computational effort. Things are happening. The structure of space is getting recreated, rewritten to represent the fact that this thing that represents the clock or you or whatever else is taking up a different position in space. So there's, in a sense, computational processing going on to rewrite the structure of space to allow motion. So when time goes forward, 
and the clock is ticking because it's got some pendulum going back and forth or it's got some crystal that's oscillating or whatever it is that makes the clock tick, that, that process of the clock ticking is something which also takes computational effort. So what happens is you've got these two things that take computational effort, moving forward in time and moving yourself to a different place in space, that is a motion to one place, from one place to another. And so what happens in relativistic time dilation, as it's called, is that you're essentially trading off those two things. You're saying, I'm moving a lot, so I'm using up my kind of computation budget doing that motion, and I don't have as much computation budget left over to actually evolve through time. So that's kind of why in our models, the uh, time dilation happens, that you're using up your computational effort moving through space, so time runs more slowly for you. That's what happens with time dilation. So the limiting case of time dilation is what happens when you're moving at the speed of light. When you're moving at the speed of light, time simply doesn't pass because the, there's infinite time dilation. You're kind of using all of your effort to just move and there's no, no computational effort left over to actually evolve in time. And so for photons, which travel at the speed of light, that's what's happening they are sort of using all of their sort of computation power to, to do the motion at the speed of light and none of it to change their own character or to change anything about them. So that means that a photon that's just sort of moving freely, not running into anything, no time is passing for that photon. So for example, at the beginning of the universe, the universe at very early moments was very hot and was kind of like a, a fireball of, of something where you couldn't see through the fireball. But about 100,000 years after the beginning of the universe, it cooled down to the point where that sort of fireball, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the plasma kind of um, turned into ordinary hydrogen gas and the thing became transparent. And any photon that was emitted from that fireball when it became transparent, at the moment when it became transparent, that photon is just gonna keep going, keep going, keep going, and in fact, we can pick up those photons. That's what the cosmic microwave background is. It's photons that started their journey uh, at the 100,000 years or whatever after the beginning of the universe. And uh, they've survived all that time until the moment when they hit our radio detector or whatever. And we say, yes, there was a photon there. But for all that, whatever it is, 14 billion years, they've just been traveling freely. And if you were that photon, so to speak, though no time would have passed. It's as if you were born at the beginning of the universe and then nothing, no time passed, and then you crash into some, some detector that those pesky humans put up to, to catch you, so to speak. So, so in a sense, um, no time passes there. Now, what happens is a photon has certain characteristics. It is going in a particular direction, it has a particular momentum, it has a particular energy, the energy determines its wavelength, its frequency, etc. Those things are completely unchanged if the photon is just propagating freely through space. The only way those things change is by the photon scattering from something. Like, for example, let's say it uh, goes uh, it, it goes near an atom, and it's it's kind of made to uh, sort of change its momentum direction, or it runs into that detector and it's just completely absorbed. Those are things that change sort of the, the direction, the, the, the characteristics of a photon. But otherwise, a photon just goes on its merry way at the speed of light, 
no time is passing and it's uh, that's how it works and, and its characteristics can't change. Now, small footnote that's a little bit tricky. When the photon was emitted from um, the, uh, the early universe, it was uh, a photon that had a whole bunch of energy. It was, it was kind of a photon, uh, let's see, probably about, um, uh, well, it was the equivalent of a visible light photon, um, like the kind of photon that would come from the surface of the sun. But by the time we receive it, it has been Doppler shifted to become a microwave photon that has only a very a much lower energy. And the reason that happens really has nothing to do with the photon itself. It's because in effect, the, the expansion of the universe makes the thing that's emitting it recede from us at something close to the speed of light. Okay, what do I mean by all of this? So you might've noticed if you hear some, you know, some vehicle with a siren going past you, it'll go, you know, uh, you'll always hear as the thing approaches you, it'll seem like it's higher frequency. It'll be, woo, 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 and then as it goes past you, it's a, goes to lower frequencies. Um, the reason that's happening, it's a phenomenon called Doppler shift. And the reason that's happening is the sound waves that are coming to you, there are a succession of waves. And let's say uh, that the, at the source on, of the siren, let's say it was producing waves 10,000 times a second. So it's producing crests of sound waves 10,000 times a second, crests trough, crests trough 10,000 times a second. But the point is when that thing is moving towards you, then there's both the rate at which it's producing sound waves, but then more of those sound waves are getting to you because of the motion of that thing, that it's sort of piling up more of those waves. And so the frequency will be higher as it goes away from you. It, it's kind of like it's producing waves at that frequency, but that the, they will not pile up, they will elongate away from you because of the motion of the, of the actual source of sound. And so it will be lower frequency. And that's what's happening in the case of photons, that it isn't that anything was changed about the photon. It's just that the source of the photon was effectively receding from you because of the expansion of the universe in that case. Um, and so the effective energy frequency of the photon is lower. So that's kind of the, the answer to that. It's kind of an interesting thing to imagine if you imagine sort of a, a whole civilization that existed with, with photons and where the only way the photons interact is that kind of two photons meet on a grain of dust somewhere or, or a hydrogen atom somewhere in the universe. And there's a sort of a big network of just photons interacting and, and they, you know, they might propagate for a billion years and then, uh, then interact and then propagate for another billion years. And to us, it's like a billion years past, but to the photons, it's no time at all past between the time when they last between the different interactions that they have. So it's kind of an interesting sort of science fiction-y thing to imagine what would it be like if you've experienced the history of the universe as a photon, so to speak, perhaps as a photon that's scattered just a few times since the beginning of the universe. What would that, what would that seem like to you? That kind of brings us to another question that was asked here from uh, Bobby asking, do you think it's worth investing in attempting cryonic suspension as a way to continue living? And that's, that's strangely related to what I was talking about with photons. So what is cryonics? So the basic issue is when you have a, an organism, a biological organism like a human and the human 
dies, it's like it's all over, it's an irreversible thing, never coming back. But what if you could freeze the human? What if you could put it in, you know, put it in the freezer, so to speak, and then, uh, and then just reanimate it at some point in the future? So people have been trying to do that for a long time with, with humans. It turns out that there are at least amphibians which can get kind of frozen in the ice all winter and they kind of, uh, they, they are pretty much uh, not, you know, they're pretty much their metabolism has stopped and then come thawing time in the, uh, um, they, they sort of happily come back to life. And there are many organisms, there are many even mammals that hibernate although they don't go to the state of being absolutely sort of frozen with nothing happening. They just go to lower heart rate and so on and, and um, lower energy consumption. But the question is, could you take a human, for example, and actually just completely freeze them so that they're in, you know, at a temperature of liquid nitrogen or something and absolutely nothing is happening. No chemical processes are going on. Nothing is decomposing no bacteria attacking things, just absolutely frozen, and leave it that way for 100 years, 200 years, whatever, and then say, okay, let's thaw it out again and uh, come back to life, so to speak, and be, uh, uh, you know, happily continue. Okay, there is one key problem which has really prevented this from working, which is the following thing that seems like it shouldn't be relevant, but it is which is water expands when it freezes. And since we are predominantly made of water, um, what happens is the water in our cells, if you try and take a human, for example, and freeze them, the water in our cells will expand and it'll basically destroy the cells in, in that expansion process. And you see the same kind of thing if you take, oh, I don't know, raspberries or something and you and you freeze them even you put them in liquid nitrogen to freeze them and you do it quite quickly um it will tend to be the case that the the uh the water in them will freeze and expand and break down the cell walls and you'll get a very mushy raspberry when you when you reanimate it so to speak when you heat it up again and so that's been the key problem is how do you prevent uh kind of the uh, as you freeze a a biological organism like us, how do you prevent the water in it from expanding and basically destroying the, the structure of the organism? So there are various ideas for this that involve various kinds of antifreeze substances and glycol and various things like this. Um, oh, I should say one very critical fact about water. At zero degrees centigrade, water freezes, turns into ice. Ice, for any given number of molecules, ice is bigger than liquid water. Um, it's a weird thing. Water is un very unusual in that respect. Usually solids of a, of a particular substance are smaller than the corresponding liquid. Usually the atoms, are, the molecules are closer packed in the solid than they are in the liquid. For water, anomalously, that is not the case. However, as normally when you freeze water, you get this ice, which is this crystal where, and there are different forms of ice, but there's a particular form of ice that you get when water freezes at normal pressure um, at zero degrees centigrade, um, and that form of ice is bigger than liquid water, it will destroy cells, it's bad news. Okay, if you can get down to minus 44 degrees centigrade, uh, water uh, so-called vitrifies. Instead of turning into ice, which is a nice crystal where all the atoms are lined up, where all molecules are lined up, and it's a very regular array, water has another state which is glassy, 
it's amorphous. The, the kind of the molecules are just all sort of pushed in there and it's not, um, it's not with all the molecules lined up. And that state is smaller than liquid water. And so if you could go from, you know, cool down, cool down, cool down to uh, still liquid water, and then jump over the zero degrees centigrade down to the minus 44 degrees centigrade, you would probably solve the problem. You would probably be able to take a, uh, an organism and, uh, uh, and freeze it um, and, uh, uh, and get it to the point where it can, um, uh, where no cells are destroyed. Now, people have done a bunch of experiments on a bunch of different kinds of tissues, trying to get it to the vitrification point um, without going through this sort of intermediate zone. And there are a number of techniques that involve, I think, um, let's say, I think helium gas is a good thing because it has very high thermal, how does that work? You, basically the problem is, if you can get cold into every part of the organism quickly enough, you can probably get it to jump over this intermediate zone of temperatures and get down to the place where vitrification will happen. But it's tough to get the cold in quickly enough, so to speak. Now, for example, this is of interest in, in sort of a, in the practice of medicine in things like uh, organ transplants and preserving organs and so on. And uh, the, the question is, you know, if you take a, a kidney or a liver or something like this or a heart and you're trying to um, uh, preserve it and you're trying to, you know, it'd be good if you could like freeze it and just leave it in, in uh, you know, frozen for a month, two months, whatever, rather than having to, uh, you know, having to sort of transport it very quickly. And so there's, there's considerable interest, even if you don't think about kind of the take a whole human and freeze them, there's considerable interest in this problem of how do you take biological tissues and uh, get them to the point where they can be really frozen without, uh, without being destroyed. And I think there's been slow progress on, on this topic. I mean, it's been a sort of strange thing about cryonics that while experiments have been going on for 60, 70 years or more, um, it's, uh, and, and there are companies that will, you know, freeze people using the best available technology, um, the, it, it's, um, uh, the amount that's been done on this is really very modest compared to what you might think, given how important it would be if it really worked. Because if you imagine a situation, I mean, the, the, you know, the common scenario would be you get some nasty disease. Nobody knows how to cure that disease right now, but one can kind of tell that the research is pointing in the direction where in 10, 20, 30 years, that will disease will be absolutely fine. It'll be easy to cure, you know, as has happened with many kinds of cancers, for example, over the last few decades um, and other kinds of things um, where we say, okay, let's, you know, pause life, uh, get cryonically frozen, and when one knows how to fix whatever whatever was wrong, then sort of uh, de defreeze and get fixed and go on and uh, you know lead more life type thing. So and and obviously the biggest thing that one doesn't know how to reverse yet is aging. Um, the the question of why aging happens at all is an interesting question, and the question of what's actually going on, what's going wrong. You know, is it genetic damage? Is it Oxid damage from oxidation, essentially metabolism, essentially the burning of material in cells. Um, is it uh, uh, you know is it is it actually just programmed cell death? Are we like programmed because that's what's good for the species to have us old folk um, eventually die off 
so the species can kind of um, have the new generation come in and and uh, take things over and so on? Is, is it something that is really just a, a bug in the system that was just the result of evolution because a million years ago, it was really a good thing to let the new guard come in and get rid of the old guard. Maybe that isn't so true anymore. I don't know. Maybe it is still very true. Hard to know. But um, uh, in any case, with the, 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 these different theories for what causes aging and one doesn't really know. Uh, and one, one wonders whether at some point in the future, there'll be kind of the the elixir of eternal youth that people have talked about for a long time, where it's just like uh, there's some there's some bug in our system that if we could only fix it, um, we would be able to kind of biologically regenerate forever because our cells are most of our cells are continually regenerating. I mean, it's not the case. If you say, am I the same person I was yesterday, so to speak, it's sort of an interesting philosophical question. You know, progressively, the cells that are in me, my skin cells, my blood cells, my et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, cells um, are gradually turning over that, you know, they'll after some days to months to whatever, one generation of cells will die off. Another set of cells will be produced. And gradually the me is sort of turning over to a new set of cells. But I still think of it as me. One small exception is, is most nerve cells don't turn over like that. Most nerve cells are like there for, for a lifetime, so to speak. There's a slow rate of new nerve cell production and a rate at which nerve cells die. Um, but uh, uh, sort of the, I suppose the, the, the proto theory, which probably isn't really that well supported by, by data at this point is sort of the more you use your brain, the more new nerve cells will be produced. Um, and uh, the longer the whole thing will, will last, so to speak, at least that's, that's a theory that I, I somehow partly subscribe to. But in any case, the, um, the question of, uh, uh, so, you know, one of the key things with cryonics is, you know, if in 50 years, it's known kind of how to reverse aging, then if you can sort of press the pause button and say, okay, my, you know, my lifespan as it is right now is up in X number of years, but if you can pause it for another 50 years or something, and then by the time your pause is over, um, it's kind of like now we know how to reverse aging and you can keep going forever, so to speak. Um, that's the um, uh, that's that's kind of the, the the concept, the hope. And, you know, one can certainly debate the question of what would the world be like if people were uh, immortal. And um, I, I have to say that sometimes I think as I look at kind of the way in which new ideas come in in the world and uh, things I've done to try and sort of induce new things to happen. I sometimes think that if it was biological evolution that made finite lifetimes, it wasn't so, it wasn't such a dumb thing for it to do because the, it is the case that uh, the kind of, you know, people get set in a particular direction. And if you say, well, there's this new stuff, it's really good. They'll be like, well, I've been happily doing this for the last 40 years and I just want to keep on doing what I've been doing. And if it was like, well, I just want to keep on doing what I've been doing for 400 years or 4,000 years, uh, things could get very, uh, uh, things could, could really slow down in terms of, of any kind of change. Some think that that's good, some think that's bad. Um, I think it's a, a mixed bag myself. I think that there's uh, sometimes people say, the new is really good. There's everything should be new. And they say, but it turns out that we've accumulated a lot of things in, our, in the history of our civilization that I think are pretty interesting and not so bad. 
And to just say the new is the only thing we want to consider is, is also a mistake. On the other hand, to say only the old is worth considering and there could never be anything new created, that's also a mistake. I mean, one of the things that's come out of a lot of science I've done is the realization that for very theoretical reasons about the science, there will always be a frontier of new things to discover. One will never be finished. There will be, given the physical universes that exist, there will always be new technology to be invented. There will always be new things to be discovered. That's just a sort of mathematical fact. Um, and so it isn't, uh, that, that's something where you can expect that sort of change will continually be able to happen. Whether you choose to make change happen, well, that depends on sort of what part of the space of possible things one might invent do we want to live in, and that's a societal choice and so on, which is a more complicated thing to talk about. But in any case, back to cryonics. Um, so sort of the idea uh, of cryonics is the sort of the, the freeze and pause type thing. Now it's a complicated thing because if you imagine, and I was, uh, it's a sort of interesting thought experiment. If you say, imagine you were frozen a hundred years ago and you wake up today, how do you sort of, how do you view society today? How do you view, you know, is it the case that, that you kind of have a good time with that sort of time shift or is that time shift actually like a, well, I was doing really well in my particular place and time, but if you shift me to another time or even another place, it might be a quite different story. So those are sort of uh, some of the questions about cryonics. And I've, I've noticed that people have a, a, some people are like, cryonics, that's the thing. You know, I think it's really great. And some people are like, I'm going to live my life at this time in history, and that's it. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's an interesting thing to kind of realize what it feels like to kind of wake up in another time and so on, and I, I think I've, I've had this experience a little bit in a strange way, because particularly, for example, I've, I did a bunch of work in physics when I was much younger, and then I kind of, in effect, in effect was sort of cryonically froze myself with respect to physics for about 40 years, and then sort of came back again. And that's been an interesting thing, because it's like careers, you know, the people I knew, they were starting their careers 40 years ago, now it's 40 years later, they may be ending their careers. It's kind of like a, a time shift. And it's sort of an interesting thing. It's a, it's, it's a little bit disorienting in some ways, but it's fascinating in other ways because you get to say, hey, I wonder what happened to that thing. Well, now you can tell. Um, I'm, I'm sort of having the same experience actually with the kind of ideas around complexity, which I'm just sort of returning to and, and thinking about sort of how to take the next steps with. And that's again, something that I really pursued up to about 35 years ago, and then kind of uh, have not been as connected to for a very long time. I also personally noticed this a bit. Uh, you know, I grew up in, in England, and uh, I've lived in the US now for what is it, 44 years. Um, and uh, the, you know, when I go back to England, it's kind of like, I'm, uh, it's funny, because, you know, I remember things as they were 44 years ago. And it's like, I'm, I'm sort of asking for, for types of candy where the person at the store is, is, is looking at me like, what on earth are you talking about? And it's like, well, that was a thing back, back in the day, but oh, whoops, it's been overtaken by American candy or something since then. And, and probably uh, longer ago than the person at the, at the store was born and things. And it's all very, very confusing. And it's kind of a realization that there's a certain one is used to a certain time and place, so to speak. 
and there's a definite adjustment to making going to a different one. So I think that's that's kind of the more sort of personal societal aspects of cryonics. I think there are other aspects of cryonics that are kind of um, interesting. Um, I mean, I think that the primary issue is this sort of technical one of sort of how do you freeze quickly enough, and how do you sort of get how do you how do you get freezing stuff into something like a human quickly enough? It turns out people do experiments on rats and mice and things a lot easier with rats and mice because they're smaller. And the time it takes for sort of the cold to get into the brain of a, you know, every part of the brain of a mouse is much smaller than the time for a human. So you have to kind of invent these methods of, well, typically using the circulatory system, the bloodstream, to just get stuff in, get the cold stuff in as quickly as possible. And, you know, there's a convenient fact that because the, the circulatory system is for delivering oxygen to our tissues, the every, you know, the capillaries uh, grow out in our circulatory system to the point where there is a capillary within maybe two microns of every single piece of tissue in your body, because otherwise that piece of tissue wouldn't stay alive. Because what happens is there are red blood cells delivering oxygen, and those red blood cells are kind of dumping off their oxygen. It's diffusing through that last two microns to get to the particular cell that it's supposed to be delivering oxygen to that allows the cell to metabolize and generate energy and do all those good things. So that's kind of a system that we have a built-in system for delivering stuff to different parts of, of our bodies. But that stuff is usually blood, which is at whatever, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever it is. Um, and uh, is that core temperature? Is that just the temperature we're measuring? I think it's core temperature. So that, yes, about that temperature. Uh, 36 degrees Celsius, I think. Um, that right shows what shows what countries I've lived in. What, what, whether I know the um, body temperature in Celsius or not. Um, in any case, the the uh, and so you know the challenge is: could you really have that be minus 44 degrees centigrade? And how quickly can you do that? And that's kind of the the very practical, almost physics-like challenge of cryonics. And uh, I think. There are other aspects of cryonics, like if you say, uh, you know, in the legal system, if you're a, a um, you know, a living uh, sort of active person, you can do things like own things. If you are cryonically frozen, what does that mean? You know, are you, do you count as, oh, no, that person is dead, you know, you have to, um, uh, you know, it's all the estate taxes and, and uh all this, all this kind of thing or not. There's a bunch of issues around that. Um, there's also, well, there's a lot of, lot, of, lot of questions around those kinds of things. Society hasn't been set up for cryonics yet. Um, and uh, there's a, of course, cryonics has to work better and more convincingly because right now, the technologies that exist will destroy cells. They may not destroy them too badly, but they will destroy cells. And the only way to, to bring those cells back would be some kind of nanotechnology, some kind of molecular scale repair of cells, which there's no reason to think won't be possible at some point in the future, but it's, it's more work, so to speak. And it's not just, you know, press the reanimate button and, um, and, and walk out of the, uh, uh, you know, walk out of the facility type thing. So anyway, that, that's a, um, uh, some thoughts about cryonics. I, I should say that the other, the other sort of competing concept of cryonics is, you know, forget trying to freeze and reanimate, just freeze and just say uh, you can, and just make it so that every molecule in your body is kind of frozen in place. 
and there are uh, there are things you know when when you take a random specimen, some biological specimen, and it's a poor dead frog or something. I'm really squeamish about dead things, so I I, I hate even this concept. But um, uh, you know, take the dead frog and put it in uh, in uh, formaldehyde or whatever, and and then it'll just stay there for forever. And like the specimens that Charles Darwin collected in the um, you know 1830s or something are still sitting in the in the British Natural History Museum um, in these jars of, of of formaldehyde or whatever formalin, I guess. Um, and uh, uh, and the way that happens is that that substance is this pretty small molecule that kind of gets into all these different parts of the, of the organism, all the different tissues, and it just locks all the proteins in place. So all these, all these proteins that will be flapping around and, and having chemical reactions and so on, it's just lock them. And um, so that can preserve, presumably, the, the structure of different kinds of, of things. So a question would be, if you take a brain uh, with, its, with all of its nerve cells, and all of those detailed connections between nerve cells that store memories, and you essentially, you freeze it not by changing its temperature, but you freeze it by putting in some substance that basically locks all the molecules in place. What can you do with that? And could you at some point in the future just say, okay, we're gonna do a scan of that and forget how the brain originally worked. We're just gonna scan it and we're gonna put it in some digital form. And then it'll be like every memory that was stored there is, is still preserved. So that's kind of a, a plan, a second plan for how you preserve these things. Now that's a very complicated philosophical question. It's like, it's you, it's your memories, it's everything about you, but it got frozen in this way where it isn't the, the physical material of you. And then it gets kind of reconstituted in digital form. And then there's a question, is that you, is that not you? How, do you, how does that feel? You know, this relates very much to sort of the inner questions of consciousness and so on of, you know, you, is there some feeling of consciousness that would be broken by this transition from the physical you to this sort of digital copy of the memories of you? And I think these are all interesting questions and they're all interesting sort of philosophical questions. It's worth realizing that a lot of sort of the what is us is a story of what we remember from the past. And so the digital copy of us with the same memories is still going to feel like it's us, so to speak, in that digital copy because it has those same memories. Now, if you say, as I think about a moment in the future when everything's going to get frozen and it's going to, and a thousand years are going to pass, and then it's going to sort of reappear in some digital form, how does that feel to me now? Well, the answer is it doesn't feel like anything because as soon as you stop the thought process for you, there is nothing to feel, so to speak. So it's kind of like in um, uh, when you think about physics and you think about time passing, and I was talking earlier about time passing for photons and things, for a photon, no time passes. In, in the universe at large, in the middle of a black hole, for example, time simply stops. The, the, in, in our models of physics, there's a sort of this continual updating of the universe, the continual updating of this network that represents space and everything in space in the universe. And it can be the case in the center of a black hole at a space-time singularity that time simply stops. Nothing gets updated anymore. So if you're saying, what does it feel like for you to be at a place where time stops? Well, it doesn't feel like anything because there's no feeling going on. 
time has simply stopped. And that's, I think, what, you know, if you imagine kind of the, the feeling of, it's, it's kind of like the, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's qualitatively like the go to sleep and wake up again, but it isn't really like that because actually really nothing was happening. It was, it was just time was stopped, like for a photon, like at a space-time singularity. Um, and, uh, you know, the, at a space-time singularity, well, there are all questions about whether, whether it can restart again. And um, that, that's something that uh, what we were just talking about in the context of cryonics. Um, there are questions here about, um, there's a question from Philip. Why does time seem to speed up as we age? You know, I've wondered about that. I kind of have this impression that it's all fractional, that, you know, we remember a certain amount of stuff and the what happened in the past year is to be compared with everything we remember. So if we've been around for 40 years, 60 years, 50, 20 years, whatever, each successive year is to be compared to the memories we've had of all previous years. So it's, it's kind of just a ratio. And that means that as one gets older, any given actual year that passes is a smaller fraction of one's life. And so it, it, is, it feels like it's, it's less time, so to speak, because it's just a smaller fraction. That's, that's, my, that's my best guess about that phenomenon. And I think that um, uh, it is an interesting question if sort of there was effective immortality and people were routinely living for you know, 10,000 years or something like this, um, would, it, would it feel like, would it, would it really not be relevant because it's all kind of... Um, uh, it's all kind of logarithmic, I suppose. Uh, let's see. So that's an interesting question. In if it really was fractional like that, I would assume that the the integral still diverges. So you would still feel like you were living for infinite time. It wouldn't be the case, as happens in some situations in general relativity, the theory of gravity, where where time sort of slows down to the point where the the total amount of time, like like for example, when you fall into a black hole. Uh, at least in a non-rotating black hole, um, the time before you reach the space-time singularity is finite. And that means that, that even though, so time, uh, it doesn't quite work this way in that case, but I think there may be cases where this works that way, where time is sort of speeding up for you. And there, there's a point at which, yes, in fact, that does happen. You, you reach um, a slightly more complicated scenario. Let me not describe it in detail here, but, but uh, basically it's as if, um, time is speeding up, but you reach, that's right, you reach, in fact, this happens, yes, it happens for an observer from who's falling into the black hole and observing the outside, the rest of the universe. The, the, as the observer falls into the black hole, time, to somebody outside the black hole, that, that thing falling into the black hole time seems to be running slower and slower for it. So if there was a clock falling into a black hole, when it's far away from the black hole, the clock's ticking once a second, let's say, looked at from outside the black hole, as it falls in, the clock will just look like it's ticking slower and slower and slower. And as it reaches the event horizon of the black hole, it will just seem like it froze. Okay, now, as far as the clock is concerned, the clock is looking outside at the rest of the universe. And the clock, its experience of the world is based on its, its uh, ticks of the clock. So every second it experiences a second of time. But because to the outside, it looks like it froze, what that means to the clock is the clock at that moment 
will the clock will just think I'm just ticking, tick, tick, tick. I'm a happily ticking clock. And when I look at the outside universe, the whole future of the universe will flash by. And so what happens is, as the clock is moving, as the clock is experiencing every tick of the clock, it's effectively seeing the whole future history of the universe at an increasingly rapid rate, sort of zoom by. So in a sense, that's the experience, that, that that's an analogy for the experience of uh, us humans would be kind of what happens in, in, the, um, in the ticking clock in the black hole of the event horizon. What happens in that case is different from what I suspect happens experientially for humans, which is in finite time, the, the, in a, in a um, uh, yes, in a finite time for the clock, it sees the whole future of the universe. So time effectively speeds up for that clock, where from the outside world, there is a moment at which the clock freezes. It doesn't have its next tick. But before it had that next tick, from the point of view of the clock, it sees the whole future of the universe zoom by. And so that, um, and that's a case where, unlike what I think happens experientially for humans, it's a case where kind of your experience of the world will take in finite time you will experience the whole future of the world, so to speak. So what seems to you like only a finite time is the infinite future of the world. And again, for humans, my, my guess is if it really is a fractional kind of type of thing, the way the math would work out would mean that you would still experience an infinite time. If you, if you lived forever, it would still seem like you were living forever. It wouldn't seem like, oh, the whole future of the universe is just happening in, uh, in finite time. Let's see. Uh, well, um, there's a question here of a rather different kind uh, from tech. Uh, how can one learn physics or math at a young age? Organizing one's life, order of topics, experience, uh, what, what's, what, is it, what is it to be a young physics enthusiast and so on? Look, the, the, the thing, I, I think I've talked about this a few times before, but I think it, it's somewhat personality dependent. Some people can just read a textbook and get a good understanding of the subject from reading the textbook. Some people, you read the textbook and you do the exercise, and you get a good understanding. Some people, it's only in that lecture class with an actual person talking about things that you can get that understanding. Some people can get the corresponding thing from videos and so on. Some people, like me, don't do very well just reading a book and even maybe doing the exercises in the book, although I have to say I'm not very patient about doing exercises. I was just confronted with a book where half its content seems to be in exercises. And so you really can't even read the content of the book without reading the exercises. And I was realizing the authors quite cleverly had set it up so you really can't understand this book without actually thinking through the exercises. So I'm afraid I may be picking another book for that subject. Um, it's a book about uh, higher category theory. Um, the uh, so anyway, the, the I think for somebody like me, I find the best way to learn subjects is to have a problem, a question that I'm trying to answer, and then given that question, I kind of uh, you know I have a definite direction, and I'm pulling in things that I need to know from this place and that place and the other, and that's how I kind of um, uh, that's how I kind of learn the subject, and to have something that I'm creating that. Uh, uh, you know, at least I believe to be new, um, and I believe to be something that I'm sort of making a contribution in, that that is a way to learn things. Like, for example, I've been learning, uh, I think I've talked about some of the things I've been learning recently, but I've been learning a whole bunch of subjects recently, because 
essentially the, uh, a bunch of things that have come out of our physics project have given us, I think, a new paradigm for modeling, a new method for modeling all kinds of things in the world. I call it the multi-computational paradigm. And it really has to do with the idea, well, the, the thing that's happened in the last probably 30 years or so is this idea of using programs and computation as a way to model things in the world. But usually what happens there is you say, I've got this program, I've got something that describes the state of this thing in the world, and then this program tells me what the state of the thing in the world that the next step is going to be, and the next step, and the next step. And it's kind of the single thread of time where at every moment you're kind of applying this computational rule to get to the next step. But what happens in our physics project is it's much more bizarre than that. There are many threads of time that are branching and merging, and there isn't just one thread of time. There are, there are many separate threads of time, and that the way that we experience that is through, as observers, we are kind of uh, conflating together the, the, what happens on different threads of time. The thing that sort of tipped me off on this is what happens in quantum mechanics, where what we think is going on in quantum mechanics is that there are these different threads of time, but as observers, we, our brains, are also following these different threads of time. And so there's this weird process of how our sort of branching brains perceive this branching universe and the way that we conflate different threads of time. And in fact, the phenomenon of quantum entanglement, I realized just this past week, is very beautifully understandable and explainable by just saying it really is just these different threads of time that we are conflating together. And that really is the process of entanglement, is that conflation being done by, by us humans, because our brains are also, insofar as we believe that we experience a definite thread of time, that we have a definite sort of consciousness that's moving through time, we are necessarily taking those things which really, in some outside sense, are different threads of time, and we're, we're knitting them together. Um, and so... In any case, that's sort of the core of this multi-computational paradigm. And what I've realized is that it provides one a sort of new raw material for models in all kinds of different areas. So I think in, in chemistry, molecular biology, um, in uh, economics and linguistics, in evolutionary biology, in immunology, a bunch of different areas. Um, this, this is a potential sort of new kind of raw material for models of things. And what's really amazing about it is that that in, in its way of providing new models for things, it is really following the pattern that we now understand physics follows. And that means that that, that pattern actually means that there are then physics-like laws that apply to these other, other kinds of systems. And essentially what happens is, I think, I don't yet know for sure, but I think that the way that we perceive the physical universe, the physical universe ultimately is all these atoms of space and they have all these different connections. And they have all these different possible paths for different kinds of connections that can develop. All these very complicated things are happening. But we humans, with our sort of conscious experience of the world, are essentially parsing, we're sampling what's going on in a particular way that sort of builds the reality that we experience. And so uh, what I think is the case is that we are a certain kind of observer of the physical universe. When it's a question of what's happening, I don't know, to molecules in some kind of chemical reaction process, what kind of observers of chemistry should we think we are? So for example, one of the things we might say, you've got all these molecules, they're all, you know, for example, in us, in, in, in molecular biology, 
and, and so on. There are all these different molecules in a cell and they're all interacting with each other and proteins are interacting and other molecules are interacting. And there's this big complicated network of interactions that's happening. On, on, and that network of interactions is happening right down at the level of this molecule interacted with this other one. Then it went off and then it interacted with another molecule. Then it came back and interacted with the first molecule again. There's a big complicated network of interactions that's going on. And so then the question is, when we... Uh, the question is, what matters about that network of reactions and what do we perceive about it? So the thing that's most common in chemistry is to say, well, we're just going to perceive the total concentration of every molecule. We're just going to say there's this amount of this molecule, this amount of this molecule. We'll have these uh, rate equations in chemistry that tell us how, you know, when there's enough of this molecule and that molecule, they'll have reactions and they'll produce these other molecules and we can write down these differential equations. And there's a whole sort of collection of differential equations, a whole network of differential equations. We can solve them. We can find how the concentration of these chemicals changes with time. Okay, that's been sort of the traditional view in chemistry and in, in uh, biochemistry of thinking about how these kinds of things work. So I suspect that there's sort of a different level that this multi-computational idea suggests, which is actually look at the individual molecules and say, there are other things, you know, looking at every individual molecule, it's just too much detail. You'll never know what's going on. The question is, is the sampling of what's happening really at the level of chemical concentrations where every copy of that molecule, you just conflate it together, you just count how many of them there are, or is there more detail that matters? Does it matter that this molecule was going off in this direction with this orientation, and it could then interact with this other one later in, in the same, in, in such and such an orientation and so on? You might say, well, why does it matter? Because we're not able to sense what happens in a biochemical system at the level of which direction is each molecule going in and so on. Well, we're not with our current chemistry. It's not obvious that biology is not able to do that. Uh, you know, when we look at membranes in, in cells and things like this, uh, in organelles and cells and, and so on, and all kinds, of, all kinds of different detailed features, it's not obvious that those things aren't acting as essentially chemical observers that are observing different kinds of things than your average chemist who is studying things with sort of at a, at a large scale, at a macroscopic scale, is studying. So that's an example of, of, of how that might work. And you know the thing that has been my sort of uh, uh, inspirational um, kind of uh, concept model for this is something about the history of biology, which is what happened in 1953 when uh, before that time, genetics was this area where people knew a certain amount about genes and how you know recessive and dominant genes, and there were all these different rules for how genes combine. Nobody really knew what a gene was. It was just some trait of an organism that was somehow passed to its to its progeny and so on. Um, and so that was um, so so it was a lot of complicated, detailed facts about how that worked. The um, the thing that um, happened in 1953 was the realization that individual molecules, in particular DNA, could store information. That, you, that it, People had thought molecules are just molecules. You count how many of the molecule there is, and that's all you get to say about the molecule. People didn't think that on an individual molecule, there would be information stored. But that was the big thing that led to modern molecular biology and the whole sort of genomics uh, world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I kind of have this suspicion that when we think about molecular biology uh, in the future, that the thing that might have been missed is something about the fact that that actually isn't 
um, the, uh, there's actually more stuff going on than you're capturing by just saying, all I care about is the concentration of chemicals. That there's, there's stuff at the level of these, these much more detailed um, uh, kinds, of, kinds of processes, which will be captured by this kind of multi-computational paradigm um, and are not really captured by just thinking about, oh, we've got these chemical reactions. That was a long kind of side comment to saying that I've been trying to learn things about these different areas, including chemistry. Um, but another one I've been trying to learn about is immunology, um, where the, um, the, the principal question there is sort of how does the immune system work? You know, we have where the different parts, there's the innate immune system, the adaptive immune system, the innate immune system we share with lots of lower organisms. And it's kind of basically molecule comes in and then there are various heuristics to say, that's a bad, that's a bad antigen. That's something, that's a bad molecule. We don't like that molecule. And there's some sort of fixed patterns that the innate immune system matches against molecules that are coming in to say, that's something bad, let's try and push it out. But that, that, that's a fixed set. So obviously there are viruses and bacteria and other things which have learned to evade the innate, innate immune system because it's like, if you're a virus and you're evolving quickly on a time scale of order months, then you quickly can, you can have sort of new viruses that change and they can readily sort of avoid the issue, the, the, what the innate immune system delivers. So then there's the adaptive immune system and the adaptive immune system is picking, is, is uh, there are maybe 10 billion, maybe a trillion, depends on the piece of the adaptive immune system, different kinds of antibodies or T cells, T cell receptors that are the things that are sort of matching the antigens that are coming in, matching the bad stuff that's coming in and marking it and saying, okay, go other parts of the immune system and destroy this particular cell or this particular, um, this particular bacterium or whatever else. And the, the question of how the adaptive immune system works is one that was sort of figured out in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. And sort of the key idea is that all the time we're randomly producing all these different kinds of antibodies. But as soon as those antibodies have something to bind to, as soon as there's an antigen to which those antibodies sort of match, then those antibodies, there's a sort of positive feedback loop that generates more and more of those antibodies. And so that's how we mount an immune response to a particular antigen is by having that antigen, uh, we, we have this sort of random collection out of these 10 billion possible antibodies, there are lots randomly being produced all the time. And you know, some number of them will match a particular antigen well enough that they will be amplified and we'll get many more of those antibodies. And so then those antibodies will be more effective at marking new antigen that comes in of that type and having the immune system destroy the, the, the cells that have been infected with that antigen or, or whatever else goes on. So the question really is, in that setup where you've got this kind of space of all possible uh, kind of um, uh, all possible kinds of immune uh, cells, all possible antibodies, there are really two parts, the B cells that produce antibodies and the T cells that have this T cell receptor and the T cells directly bind to other cells to, to, to attack them. Whereas the, the B cells, there's an antibody, it marks, the antibody marks things, and then other cells come in and, and deal with that. So it's a slightly more indirect mechanism. And, and in fact, antibody response is the more common thing that's been studied a lot in immunology, T cell response, which turns out to be important for coronaviruses like COVID-19, um, that, that um, the T cell response is less well studied and it's more difficult to 
uh, if you just take a blood sample, it's much easier to these antibodies, just pretty small molecules. And it's pretty easy to assay to figure out how much of that antibody of a particular kind there is. It's more difficult to do the same thing for T cell receptors, although it's become possible now. Um, but anyway, so, so there's, there's these two slightly different mechanisms. But either way, what's happening is, you know, antigen comes in, antibodies, there's this random collection of different antibodies being produced. Um, when an antibody is a hit, it actually matches the antigen, the antibody, the production of that antibody is, is expanded. It starts being, there's a positive feedback loop, it starts being produced more and more and more, and then it's able to mount an immune response more easily. Same thing happens with vaccines, where they are kind of uh, uh, pretending to be antigen and causing these antibodies to be produced. There actually is therapies, even for, for, for COVID-19, there are direct therapies that sort of put in antibodies that kind of take get rid of the step of um, the so-called um, uh, monoclonal antibodies, which are produced as uh, a slightly weird process, which is using a form of um, a form of blood cancer that is something which generates cells very rapidly, is sort of piggybacked on. Um, nobody has the, the, the no no blood cancer and an actual human is involved, but it's a it's a thing where the where the kind of the biology of that is used to be able to just generate a lot more and more and more of these um, uh, of these cells that produce these antibodies. But that's so you can sort of directly inject antibodies. That's a therapy for for COVID nineteen that seems rather good actually. Um, the uh, but in any case, the the thing that um, um, is a more common case is is antigen comes in, your random selection of antibodies that are always existing sort of randomly in the sort of field of different antibodies, uh, some of those will be the, the winners and then they'll get amplified. Okay, so what happens then? So one of the issues is how do they stop being amplified? Well, so a, a theory that was developed in the 60s, kind of a network theory of the immune system says, well, in addition to the antibodies, there are eventually anti-antibodies that knock down the production of antibodies and by uh, and and cause you to stop, you know, that they sort of attack the antibodies that have been produced. And then there might be anti-anti-antibodies. And overall, there's a whole network of different, different kinds of um, uh, antibodies. Same with T-cells. T-cells, one actually has actually videos of T-cells uh, binding together, actually interacting with each other, going away. They actually have direct interactions with each other that sort of build up a network of kinds of characteristics of T-cells and so on. So the question is, uh, in that setup, how does the immune system and how does immune memory work? Because one of the things that's confusing is, you know, you get a vaccine, you have a disease. It's like for life, you can potentially be uh, immune or more immune to that particular disease. How does, how does the memory of the immune system work? And people have kind of imagined that there must be some kind of cell, one of the types of B cells, for example, that produces antibodies that must be somewhere sort of hiding in the bone marrow, uh, ready to pounce at a moment's notice and sitting there just hanging out for, for your whole life, waiting to pounce. That seems implausible because most B cells don't live very long. There are some mechanisms that make B cells live longer when they're being useful, but living decades as opposed to a few months uh, seems a bit implausible. And so it seems more likely that what's happening is that sort of one population of B cells is somehow passing its knowledge to another generation um, it's kind of like the way that genomics works in, in organisms, it might be like the way the brain works. I mean, the question of whether 
we directly remember things that happened to us X number of decades ago is not clear. It's not clear we directly remember as opposed to we remember memories of remembering. And it's more likely, I suspect, that we remember memories of remembering and, and uh, that the same kind of thing is happening in the immune system, that it's sort of remembering that it remembered something. And, and that that is, it needs this whole dynamic network of interactions to kind of maintain its memory. So the question is, how does that all work? And I was realizing that this multi-computation paradigm that I've been developing actually might give one a really good way to make models of the immune system. That's of high interest because they're questions like you have a vaccine that produces, uh, causes you to produce antibodies of a very specific type. Um, and then the question is when the virus mutates, that it's kind of like you're moving around in shape space and does the production of antibodies here, how much does it help you as it moves around in shape space? How much does the fact that you have different kinds of uh, sort of uh, processes going on, how does that affect things? How does, if there is a sort of antibody, anti-antibody kind of cycle, how long does that take? How long does that, how does that relate to things like seasonal variation of uh, an epidemiology, things of this kind, which, which uh, there, there's a lot that is not known. And so I, I last kind of paid attention to immunology maybe whew, 30 something years ago. And so I knew a little bit about how things worked at that time. And so I've now been sort of trying to learn it again. And the main thing is that um, uh, there's kind of these, um, uh, you know, big thick books about this that have just tons of facts about immunology and all these different kinds of T cells. And, you know, back when I learned biology as a kid, it was just like the blood has white blood cells, red blood cells and white blood cells. But no, white blood cells is not it. It's T cells and B cells and then helper T cells and Th1 cells and CD8 positive cells and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it becomes a much more complicated story. And, and so that's a question, but my effort to learn it, if I just read these immunology books without having some kind of model in mind, without having some objective in mind, for me, at least I wouldn't remember them at all. Um, but uh, uh, when, um, uh, you know, having some definite objective and some definite sort of scaffolding that I'm trying to fit that knowledge that I'm trying to get into, then I have a real chance to remember it. All right, I think we have to wrap up really soon here. Um, Oh, there are lots of fun questions here. All right, but I think we probably, uh, maybe I can do one more. Uh, okay. Uh, there's a question here. If the center of the earth is really hot, like the sun, how come it isn't melting everything between us and it? Okay. The basic reason for that is that in a sense, the speed of heat is very slow. What do I mean by the speed of heat? Well, if you, you know, when the question is, if you have a, a, a I don't know, a metal rod, no, let's say uh, if you have, yeah, take a metal rod, you heat one end of the metal rod, how quickly does the heat from that one end of the metal rod get to the other end of the metal rod? Well, for a metal rod, it's quite fast. What's actually happening when the heat is, is going from one end to the other? What is heat? Heat is motion of molecules. So when you heat something up, it means the molecules are running around faster and faster. And what's happening is the molecules at one end that are being heated up, they're running around really fast. They're hitting molecules that are kind of still running slowly. 
and then making those molecules go faster just because when they collide, it's like billiard balls colliding. They, the billiard ball that's going fast hits the one that's going, that's just sitting there, not, not moving at all. And it makes that other billiard ball go faster too. And so that's what's happening. That the end of the rod that's being heated is, um, uh, is causing molecules. The molecules are all running around faster and faster because it's being heated at that end. Then those ones are transmitting the heat effectively to the, the rest of the rod. And the rate at which that heat is transmitted is determined by a thing called the thermal conductivity coefficient. Um, and that, that, that's a number that basically is telling you um, that for every material, there is a definite thermal conductivity. Just like there's a definite density, how much does the thing weigh per unit volume, there's a definite thermal conductivity, which tells you how fast is heat transmitted through the material. And for metals, it's quite fast. And the main reason for that is because actually in metals, heat is transmitted through electrons and electrons in a metal, the definition of a metal is that electrons kind of flow freely throughout the metal. That's why you can have an electric current uh, sort of easily going through a material. Um, in, in other materials, in, in non-metals uh, that don't conduct electricity, they also don't well, they often don't conduct heat as well. There are some exceptions like diamond, for example, is a really good conductor of heat, even though it is not a conductor of electricity. Um, but uh, the, um, the basic point is when, when in, a, in something like a crystal, heat is represented by sort of things wiggling around, molecules wiggling around. There are things called phonons, which are essentially the, the particles of heat in a, in a crystal. Phonons are... Well, it's kind of like a sound. In sound, in uh, in the air, for example, that's compression. That's some um, sort of uh, uh, higher pressure, lower pressure regions. Phonons are kind of the really microscopic version of that. That are atoms moving closer together and further apart within a crystal lattice. And so you can ask, sort of, how fast do these things move? How fast does heat move? Actually, a chap called Joseph Fourier back in the 1800s uh, figured out. Um, a bunch of stuff about kind of the, the heat equation and this question of sort of how fast does heat move? Uh, unlike something like a, a wave on a string or on the ocean, which can like just the wave is just propagating without changing. When heat propagates, it gradually gets more and more smeared out. It doesn't, it isn't the case that a sort of heat pulse just goes as a heat pulse that just goes down the rod um, you know, as a heat pulse, as it would for sound, for example, for compression, you would get this pulse that goes down the rod. In the case of heat, the pulse kind of smears out. It gets broader and broader. But it's still, it's, it's, it, can, it, it moves at a certain rate. And that rate at which it moves is determined by the thermal conductivity. The thermal conductivity is basically determined by how fast the different, uh, for example, in a metal, as I said, the, the electrons... Uh, which are uh, nice light particles are going quickly and they are um, and kind of the heat at one end is quickly transmitted to the other end because it's being transmitted by electrons they have it has high thermal conductivity in other materials the heat is transmitted by sort of a piece of crystal wiggles around and then it wiggles some other part of the crystal and the rate at which that happens is determined by characteristics of the crystal lattice and other things and that determines the rate at which heat can move through a material. Okay, having said all that, the question is, if you have something, let's say you have the sun is, is uh, it's really hot one day, and the sun is, and then you, but you say, if I dig a hole in the ground, 
how long is it, does it notice, if you're an earthworm and you live an inch below the surface of the, the, of the, of the ground, um, do you notice that it was really hot today? Okay, you can ask that question for an earthworm an inch below the surface of the soil. You can ask that question for an earthworm a foot below the surface of the soil or a hundred feet below. And turns out that the sort of speed of heat being transmitted through soil or rock is really slow. And so, for example, I don't know how, how deep you have to go, maybe a couple of feet down, the, the temperature of the soil throughout the year, even though it might be a really baking day at one point and really cold in the winter, the, the temperature is just stays, I think in many places like 50 degrees Fahrenheit, just stays a constant temperature. You don't have to dig very deep before the speed of heat has been sort of too slow to reach that at any time during the year. So even though it's really hot at some times, really cold at other times, it's just like the soil is at a constant temperature. So if you go, if you think about the center of the earth, the center of the earth is hot, uh, quite hot, um, but the speed at which that heat has been able to diffuse out to the outer parts of the earth is really slow. And in fact, it's so slow that some of the heat of the earth, probably maybe half the heat of the earth, was heat that came when the earth was formed, you know, 4 billion years ago, 4.6 billion years ago. When the earth was formed, there was lots of heat and it was trapped inside the earth and all the rock, all the solid rock that kind of uh, condensed out of, out of the liquid, that well, the liquid core of the earth, all of that is just the heat from the inside of the earth is not reaching the outside, just hasn't taken, hasn't been long enough to reach the outside. And I don't know how long it would take, but I'm guessing it's in the trillions of years or more to, to, to reach, which, is, which we don't have in the, in, so far in the universe, um, for that heat to kind of reach out to the outside, so to speak. So we've, we've sort of trapped heat inside the earth. It might be said that there is a different mechanism for heat being in the earth, which is not just relic heat from when the earth was formed, but also heat from the decay of radioactive elements that contributes part of the heat of the earth as well. But uh, so that's, that's, that's the reason is that just hasn't been time. Eventually, um, eventually the sort of the temperature of the earth will presumably come to equilibrium. It'll presumably be of constant temperatures throughout the earth. So for example, the moon, Okay, so the Earth has a liquid core. It actually has a solid core right at the center of that, of that liquid core. But most of the down, uh, what is it, 50 miles down, something like that, you get to the mantle of the Earth, um, and, um, you, and then it's liquid all the way to the, to the very center. Um, and, uh, you know, the Earth hasn't had time to cool uniformly. The moon is smaller and has had time, presumably, and it does not have a liquid core. Uh, Mars, I think, is thought to maybe have a tiny liquid core. Um, and so, so this thing, the, the answer is that eventually, um, eventually things will be, uh, will come to, uh, there's a certain amount of heat in the earth and eventually everything will come to a constant temperature. And actually it's a good question what that constant temperature would be. I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, well, I think it might be determined by Hmm. It's complicated because it will depend on uh, the atmosphere, which also is a barrier because the, the, the temperature of space is much lower. The temperature of space is kind of hard to assess a temperature in space because temperature is associated with the motion of lots of molecules. And in space, there aren't any molecules. Like in inter interstellar space, 
there's one molecule, one atom per cubic meter, roughly. So it's very low density of material. And, and you can say, well, what's the temperature of that? Well, you can say, how fast is that atom running around? But it's a slightly weird notion of temperature. Um, and I think, uh, uh, but, but you know, the, the temperature of the radiation of the photons in space is about 2.7 kelvins, 2.7 degrees above absolute zero, that's about minus 270 degrees centigrade, um, is the temperature, which is essentially the relic heat from the Big Bang at the beginning of the universe, is left over at the level of about three degrees above absolute zero of, of radiation temperature. And uh, because of the way that things, that, that those photons at that temperature, whenever they hit atoms, they also make the atoms be at that temperature. So in a sort of first approximation, the temperature of space is three Kelvins, three degrees above absolute zero. But there's the, the you know, for the earth to come to that temperature is something that it has a lot of kind of stuff like the atmosphere where um, it's kind of, uh, uh, where, where heat doesn't propagate very quickly. Heat doesn't, doesn't travel through that quickly. So it's kind of shielded from being taken down to that temperature. But if you kind of waited long enough, eventually it would end up at the temperature of, uh, essentially the temperature of the whole universe, the temperature of space, um, which is effectively three degrees above absolute zero. All right, um, I think we should wrap up for now. And um, uh, thanks for joining us. Actually, I have another live stream that's part of my day job talking about design of uh, software uh, systems. And I think we're talking about, um, we're reviewing some visualization capabilities for the next version of Wolfram Language. And that is coming up in about 10 minutes. Um, but uh, thanks for joining us here. I see there are questions that I didn't get to today, which I look forward to getting to next week. And please think of other questions you might like to ask and feel free to, um, uh, to, to, to ask them next week. And uh, I look forward to trying to answer them. Great. Thanks very much. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.